Hi, Linda. Hey, Nancy. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Well, we are at season one, episode 14 of the Front Porch Book Club. Wow. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. And we like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. And Linny, in this episode, we are digging deep into characters. I know. Jane Austen characters. Yep. Which we love. Yep, we do. So grab your book and I see and join us on the Front Porch. Today is so exciting because our little tagline, we dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. This is what Wendy's book is all about. Today, we're interviewing Wendy Jen. She's the author of Jane on the Brain, Exploring the Science of Social Intelligence with Jane Austen. It was a New York Times new and noteworthy selection. And in this book, Wendy merges literature and science and illustrates how Austin's characters are wonderful representations of what we know currently about mind-brain functioning. I mean, it's just remarkable. Wendy Jones is a practicing psychotherapist and former English professor known for her work on literature and the mind-brain sciences. She received her PhD in English literature from Cornell University and is a senior lecturer and fellow at the Society for Humanities. She has been a visiting professor at Williams College, University of Rochester, and Syracuse. Wendy has a blog. It's called Intersubjective for Psychology Today, where she covers a lot of really interesting topics. The other exciting thing that she was telling us about that I just want to mention is she has a forthcoming essay that's going to be included in Rutledge's Companion to Jane Austen. I think our listeners are really going to be interested in this scientific view of Jane Austen's characters. We love her characters. We love Jane Austen. Having read her so many years ago... And now being able to read her and understand her characters more deeply than before. I just love these characters even more. It just shows more dimension to them. So we're just really excited that she is able to join us for our podcast. Yep. Well, let's get to it. Okay. Welcome so much, Wendy, to the front porch. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited. We're so happy that you could join us today. I'll tell you, I absolutely adored your book. I will go on and on about it. I've already told my coworkers about it, and I'll be talking about the book more to people. I absolutely adored every page of this book. Well, thank you so much. It's very gratifying. I read these Jane Austen books a long time ago, way before I went to graduate school and knew anything about psychology and mind brain and neuroplasticity and all that good stuff. But I fell in love with Jane Austen's characters. Mm -hmm. Now reading your book and seeing these characters through a clinical lens It was like a whole nother aspect to these characters. How did you come up with the idea of using Jane Austen's novels to explain neuroscience and psychology? It was a journey. I was an English PhD and I was teaching English and writing at Cornell. I was a lecturer and I began to just get more and more 
interested in neuroscience and psychology. And I did a, a lot of reading about it. I actually, for the neuroscience part, I actually did take some classes. And, you know, and I was also just reading all of this uh, material on psychology. I had these interests and as a writer, you want to put your interests to writing. I just began to think about literature and the way that neuroscience and psychology relate to it. I thought about it, the more I realized, wait, Jane Austen. And I began to think, why is she popular? And I realized she's popular because she resonates with us. We love these characters because we understand them. And that that is the core of a lot of things. Human relationships, secure attachment is resonance, understanding. We are social beings and we need that. And it just grew out of that. Reading all of her novels a couple of decades ago, you read it through the female person. Mm -hmm. So you're understanding Elizabeth, you are a female, you understand her point of view, the sisterly attachments, the family, all of that. What I really liked is then when you explained what was going on with Darcy. Mm. Why was Darcy the way he was at the ball? What was going on with him? What were the expectations? What was his attachment? What was going on in his brain? So I really appreciated that part of it. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about that, Linda, is that we have access to that the way that Elizabeth does. Austin, she doesn't go into Darcy's brain. Mm -mm. We understand what's going on because she does go through Elizabeth and into her mind and she focuses through her. But we understand Darcy's brain because we're reading his signals and we're actually seeing what Elizabeth is missing. It's just brilliant. If our listeners have heard any meowing, <laughs> Wendy has a beautiful kitty who was wanting to participate in the podcast. But Wendy, I believe you've now exiled her off the front porch into another part of the house. All right. So yeah, just, you know, that is not me purring down there. Sorry. Oh, no. No, no, no. no. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to talk about that builds on what Linny was mentioning is in the book, it was so interesting that you talk about the research that distinguishes between emotions and feelings. And basically talking about the research that says emotions are the subconscious signals that activate our higher brain areas and feelings are our experience or recognition of those signals. Why is that distinction important? I think that it's important psychologically because it, it just explains a lot of how people don't understand themselves. And I think that that's really at the heart of a lot of, of Austin's novels. Right. And Elizabeth, actually, she comes to say this. Darcy really insults her at the ball and she's miffed and she's upset. She doesn't read that feeling correctly you know, maybe she even suppresses it a little. She laughs at it. She interprets it as finding it amusing and funny. And because of that, her perception is really skewed. If she'd been seeing things correctly, she would have understood that he was really falling in love with her. And because she just sees him as scornful and hateful and she, she's not reading things correctly. And I think that's at the heart of a lot of things with people. People can just walk around angry and they don't know where it's coming from or the concept of acting out. You act out, you're aggressive. And 
that emotion originally is is hurt and sadness you know so i i think that that distinction is important because we really live it all the time and i think austin gets that really brilliantly you know she has two heroines who are really in touch with themselves and their emotions and interpret correctly all the time and those are those are pretty much fanny and mansfield park and and in persuasion and I like the example you give in your book also about Elizabeth and Darcy when they see each other at Pemberley, their emotions create physical reactions, the blushing. Right. And then that is in some ways for them separate than their feelings. Yeah, well, they they are embarrassed and they blush, but there's also a kind of underplay of attraction. And I think that's just, that's really right. They're not quite accessing that. Yeah. And Austin writes it separate. I mean, it's only been recently that we really have understood that emotions and feelings are distinct, but Austin wrote it. She somehow intuitively knew that which is fascinating. She just, she watched people. She watched and she watched and she watched. And that's why we can use her to really explain psychology and a lot of neurobiology because she really got how the human mind manifests itself. And she, she was just an extraordinary, very scientific observer. And actually her family was a scientific family. That business of we don't get into Darcy's mind she wouldn't even write a scene in which women were absent because she wouldn't write something she couldn't observe or know. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I think I read that in the book. Yeah. It seems like most of the books that I read from that era, there was much more of a hierarchy and a separation of what you could talk about. Mm -hmm. People had to be present, how intimate your conversations got with people. Women couldn't really tell somebody that they were interested in, that they really, really liked them. They had to try to find other ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that led to a lot of false assumptions about things because you're not coming right out and saying it. Right. It was very decorous and circumscribed culture for women. If you remember that scene in Pride and Prejudice where Charlotte Lucas says to Elizabeth Jane, she really needs to send out some signals that she likes Bingley. Right. Because he's not going to understand it. That's how women, they had to operate covertly Even Austin herself operates covertly, like she could not be forthright in her books any more than a woman could come out and say, hey, Darcy, let's go to the bar next next Saturday night. And actually, Charlotte Lucas is right, because that's why Darcy separates them. He has no idea that there's a really strong attachment on Jane's part. Or, you know, he might have acted differently. And from a female point of view, Elizabeth is looking at her sister and sees the attachment. Right. One of the things that I love that you talk about is how Austin was influenced by the 18th century philosopher David Hume, Mm -hmm. who believed that emotion is inseparable from reason, and that to be a virtuous person, your reason has to be guided by your emotions. And I thought, this is so interesting, because it's so different from 21st century, where we're talking about good decision-making has to be based on cold-hearted logic, and you should make decisions without emotion. So can you tell us more about how emotion and reason work together and how Austin plays with those ideas and her characterizations? Sure. There's a book from 1994 called Descartes' Error, 
by the philosopher Antonio Damasio. And he had this very interesting case where this guy had been completely functional, very successful businessman. And he had some kind of brain injury or surgery. And afterward, when he went back to work, I mean, he was all the intelligence came back, all of his executive fun function, his logical reasoning came back, and he was just awful. He couldn't do anything. He was inefficient. He couldn't finish projects. He went through several wives. He was a total mess. And everyone would say like, but look, you know, he tests right on everything. And Demacia uh, realized that the injury was to the limbic area, to emotional regions. And what happened is once he, you know, he did not have that input, once it was damaged, he could not prioritize. Hmm. So he didn't know, like, which client should I work on or what task do I do first? And, you know, do I finish my work or I, do I go out and have a beer? I am convinced Austin Red Hume, okay, Wentworth in Persuasion, right? I mean, he thinks he has a very, very logical mm -hmm. take on what happened, his assessment of Anne, the woman who broke their engagement eight years ago. He has her personality assessed, you know, she's weak. I was mistaken about her. She wasn't worth it. And he's completely driven by emotion. And, you know, the lack of recognition of that is something that keeps him away for eight years and hurts both of them. I mean, all of her characters make decisions with their emotions. Yeah. And I think the people who do, like Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, the buffoon, is like, you must want to marry me. <laughs> You're refusing me because that's what a woman does. He's the calculating rational one, and he's just like completely out of it. He has no common sense whatsoever. He's not picking up on a lot of uh, social cues there. So let's move on to adaptive reorganization and how that has to do with Mr. Collins too. You talk about the different ways humans respond when they can't smoothly fit new information into their current ways that they're seeing the world. So Mr. Collins, for example, is what you're defining as rigid. He can't believe that Elizabeth could possibly refuse him, even when she is very clear about it. And then he thinks she's playing a game with him. Right, right. The chaos part of that is Marianne collapsing when Willoughby rejects her at the ball, which my heart goes out to Marianne. Adaptive reorganization, Darcy, who changes after Elizabeth's rejection. And I loved that part of it too, because again, when I was reading this, I was reading it through Elizabeth and to see how Darcy changes. So clearly adaptive reorganization, complex thinking as Darcy grows and his thinking becomes more complex and more integrated. I think she shook his ground a bit. Right. I right. think he was kind of spoiled. He gets his way most of the time because he has power and he's a male and he's got all that money. So when I think of him, it seems to me the turning point there is Elizabeth's flat out refusal. Yeah, it shocks him. You know, I think people do change through relationships and they do change through challenging events. And I think that's a lot of what Austin's novels are about. I mean, she has characters who are pretty secure and ensconced in the world, certainly the ones who, who change and learn. And, you know, for Darcy, yes, it's a real shock. 
He's proceeded on an assumption my proposal could not possibly re be rejected. She will be grateful the rest of her life. I am doing an amazing favor. I'm putting up with this horrible family. Then she rejects him and he has to rethink the whole thing. I mean, he has to really rethink what does it mean to be in a, in a relationship with someone? What does it mean to respect your wife? Which was probably not the norm back then. But I mean, he really loves her and he, he has to really rethink that. And I think the same thing for Emma Woodhouse. Now there's someone who doesn't know her feelings. She's really in love with Mr. Knightley. She, mm -hmm. she has all these clues. Right. And suddenly when she has the possibility of losing him, the shock, it jolts her and, and she knows her mind. And then she understands how she's been making the world fit her fantasies and conceptions and, and she changes. I can really relate to Marianne from Pride and Prejudice. Sense and Sensibility. Oh, Sense and Sensibility. Thank you. I love her character. And I understand her being swept off her feet, literally, <laughs> by Willoughby. Right, right. <laughs> and just the crushing blow that he is not going to marry her. Her character evolves too, because out of that devastation, she has to do something cognitively as well. Else she is just not going to survive it. This poor thing nearly dies. Exactly. So she's got to do something with that information and change and adapt. And then she ends up with, what's his name? What's his name? The old guy. Oh, Brandon. He's not that old. Is he not that old? He was 36. Marianne is what, 18, 19? He was twice her age. Okay. I, I kind of always thought that this was an older person. You talk about in your book that maybe Jane took some flack, that maybe Marianne sold out a bit and maybe really didn't love this guy because we're looking at the way she loved Willoughby. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking at the way then she was with Colonel Brandon. And how actually he was exactly who she needed. Right. Because with her emotional state, she needed stability. She needed permanency. She needed the kind of person that he was very stable because of what the chaos that she had experienced and come out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were a lot of different conceptualizations of marriage and relationship at the time. That's actually what my first book, Consensual Fictions, is about. And the idea that, that you could marry someone whom you didn't love passionately, but whom you felt a lot of, and I'm going to quote this, gratitude and esteem for was perfectly acceptable. And do you know who marries for gratitude and esteem? Do you know what I'm quoting? Elizabeth married for gratitude and esteem. He did. Austin says that Elizabeth marries Darcy. She is not passionately in love. Forget all those movies. Yeah. In the book, she marries for gratitude and esteem. And so Marianne doesn't do much different. It's just, we feel her longing with her so much. And, you know, we feel that, that longing for Willoughby and her passionate nature. I mean, Elizabeth does not have that nature. So it's not that much of a, a change, but we feel like, oh, this must be a terrible disappointment for Austin is trying her best to tell her, no, this was fine. <laughs> but I think readers, even at the time, were like, wow, this is kind of harsh. I think she wants us to really believe that this is fine for Marianne. And do you think what Austin was trying to communicate was that in her time period, that would be a great win? 
to be able to marry someone who you felt great gratitude and esteem toward because most marriages didn't even have that. That's right. It was different in novels. They often had that. The conduct books tell you, you had to have a sense of affection. Marrying without a baseline sense of affection was ethically wrong. Hmm. That's why Mariah Rushworth in Mansfield Park, the one who ends up eloping at the end because she goes for this marriage, she knows she doesn't even respect, she has no gratitude, she has no, no esteem for this man she marries. And she ends up just running away and becoming an adulteress and shunned from society. There's a balance, but it's not the sort of Hollywood, oh, you have to be completely passionately in love. There were other kinds of love that were definitely acceptable culturally, and I think that Austin endorsed. Do you think Charlotte Lucas felt affection for Mr. Collins? No, and I think that's why Elizabeth, when she, she gets so upset about that marriage and she goes, it's indelicate delicate is like proper. She's pretty much saying it's like prostitution. Right. I didn't pick up on that until you talked about getting married in a church in that time meant that you had to have some kind of esteem or feel good about the person you're marrying, else it is kind of like prostitution. But it was very acceptable prostitution. It was a paradox. There were a lot of paradoxes because the economic structure of the society meant middle-class women. What could they do? Marry or be a governess? That was terrible, being a governess. You know, they didn't have professional options, didn't have a public life. Right. And Charlotte knew her options. She was getting up there a little bit. Right. And... So she knew she was a burden. Yeah, all of 26. So she ends up with Mr. Collins, and it seems like she's happy with him. I mean, she gets her own house. She has money. She's not a burden to her parents. She has some freedom. Mm -hmm. She seems like she did okay. Mm -hmm. She sends him out of the house as much as she can. Well, there you go. It is very sad, but Austin's realistic. It is what it is. It wasn't the choice she would have made. Right. I love how you talk in the book about the intergenerational transmission of attachment styles. Mm -hmm. I loved how you wove a picture of how many of Austin's characters may have been raised, uh, what their attachment to their primary caregiver was. And you talk about three composite functions, uh, the attachment style, emotional regulation, and mentalization. Which mm -hmm. for me, in so many ways, just tied up so much of what you were talking about in a beautiful package with a bow. So can you break down those three functions and give us some examples? Okay. You look at Marianne Dashwood. Let's stay with her. She's obviously very, very nervous. She's very anxious that people will be there for her. She's even before Willoughby betrays her, she's waiting for him when they go to London and she fully expects he's going to be there. She's just nervous and on tenterhooks. That inability to remain calm and to be anxious and nervous for the person to get there, that's really a signal of insecure attachment. Eleanor, she is much, much more stable and secure. And even though Edward also betrays her and doesn't come, when she's waiting for him, she's very, she's not worrying about it. She's not thinking, will he be there? They definitely illustrate two different kinds of attachment. 
You look at someone like Anne Elliot on Persuasion, and obviously she's very, very depressed, but she is securely attached. She had that wonderful mother who died when she was 14. Yeah. So then how is attachment style different from emotional regulation and then mentalization? Okay. So those are all very, very much connected. Attachment style is really fostered by mentalization in part. Okay. Because secure attachment is fostered by a parent's ability to provide a safe base, a safe place for the child. And one of the ways that that happens is the parent resonates, reflects, and understands the child's emotion. With a parent who can accurately understand and resonate with a child, it's a very strong basis for secure attachment. It's pretty much the core of it. And then mentalization comes in because one of the ways that you tell a child that you you are understanding and resonate is by putting the contents of their minds into words. And that's how children learn to understand their own emotions. Oh, Once they can cognitively understand their emotions, that fosters the ability to regulate because they don't have all these things that they don't understand just coming at them and driving them. Simon Baron Cohen writes about, in a book called The Science of Evil, he writes about empathy in the sense of understanding emotions and thoughts and reflecting them as leading directly to secure attachment. And he talks about it as a pot of gold, because then you you have this your entire life. Hmm. It's something that you can draw on and you don't go through the world thinking, if I'm five minutes late, they won't wait for me or that partner won't call me. A really interesting thing is that there are parents who are themselves insecurely attached, but somehow they manage to empathize, reflect, see their children for who they are and convey that. And that is called earned secure attachment. They don't pay the insecurity forward. We're kind of an amazing species in some ways. Right. And that's the good news of the whole science. There's a lot of bad news. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't have secure attachment, if you had trauma, if you didn't have insight or whatever, is that you can develop secure attachment as an adult. If your fight and flight is constantly firing as a baby because no one is meeting your needs, you can learn to change that when you get older. So that's the beauty here. And that's the hope Mm -hmm. in therapy. You can change. Absolutely. And your brain can change. Absolutely. I would say most therapy is a corrective attachment experience. Well said. And the whole transference between therapist and client and what happens in that relation speaks loudly to that point. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you something very interesting about reading and therapy. I actually know someone who had a very, very traumatic past and pretty much headed off some of the worst effects of it by reading and finding that other people were out there who had gone through that and understood it. Wow. It's quite extraordinary. So speaking of extreme cases, in the final two chapters of your book, you discuss clinically severe empathy disorders like borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and you illustrate those that Austin actually had some characters exhibiting these more extreme disorders. 
Borderline, we have Lady Susan from Lady Susan. Antisocial, we have Mr. Elliot from Persuasion. And Narcissism, we have Sir Walter Elliot, and then also John Thorpe from Northanger Abbey. For me, it was just so astounding how Austin nailed these disorders long before we even had descriptions for them. <laughs> this is long before we had the DSM. How was she able to do this? I think she was able to do this because she was pretty much doing what the people who wrote the DSM do, which is observe behaviors. The DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's basically, it's statistical because you find that a certain number of people display the very same symptoms. So things like depression is very similar. It's similar across cultures. It's similar across times. So she was just looking at people and there, there were some pretty bad people. And I think she, you know, she, it's observation. All the DSM is, is observation and, and interpretation and categorization. So that categorizes, she observed. Is there anything we haven't asked you, Wendy, that you want to mention about your book? You really don't need to read her books to read my book. Yeah, good point. I tried very hard to fill it in so that people who weren't Jainites, as they're called, would be able to read the book and know what's going on. You did a great job of giving the backstory of these characters, and I appreciated it too because it has literally been probably 20 years since I, I ran through her, her book, so... The other thing that I want to say, I know about attachment in a very kind of general public kind mm -hmm. of way. This book is so accessible for someone like me because Wendy illustrates these really important psychological concepts with characters that I love. So I think people who love Jane Austen are also going to love this book as well. Thank you, Nancy. Wendy, what else are you working on? What other projects do you have that you'd like to tell our listeners about? I do a blog for Psychology Today on literature and psychology. And at the moment, I'm doing posts, individual topics using a lot of different authors, not just Austin. The blog is called Intersubjective. Excellent. We'll link it in the resource page for the episode. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The last one I did was an artificial intelligence oh. and used Ishiguro's novel, Clara and the Sun. Done one on trauma using Great Expectations by Dickens, Miss Havisham exhibiting PTSD. Oh. I'm about to do another one on trauma, but different kind of trauma. The kind of trauma, again, attachment, the trauma of constant lack of mentalization, lack of validation, lack of support, and how that can influence people's self-esteem and social and occupational functioning it can be very, very impairing. I've got an essay on Jane Austen and the social sciences forthcoming in the Rutledge Companion to Jane Austen. And I have a scholarly article. I, I think it's going to be accepted. And that actually is on narrative therapy and persuasion. Oh. It's called Persuasion and the Power of Narrative. Oh, there's a lot there that I want to read when you get it out. Uh, just amazing. Where can people best stay in touch with you and see what you're working on? I'm on Instagram as Wendy Jones Author. I have an author page on Facebook. And when I post a blog, I always post it on my author page on Facebook. My email, wendyjones18 at gmail.com. And anyone who wants to send me a personal page, friend message, 
fine. This was just tremendous. Linda and I had such a great time talking about this book in the previous episode, and it's just been so delightful to have a chance to visit with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a a wonderful, lovely, interesting conversation. Uh, We enjoyed it so much. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I loved how she talked again about attachment, Nancy. You and I talked a lot about attachment when just you and I were talking about it. Yeah. And she talks about it even more. It's just really being foundational to who we are, how our brain works, how our mind works, our relationships with other people. The last episode wasn't even the first time we talked about attachment. It almost seems like it is a running thread through many of the books we read. You go back to Kaya and Where the Crawdads Sing, and we had Jenny Cole Mossman on, and we talked a lot about attachment. I am understanding as a non-clinician more and more how attachment really is foundational. And I thought it was so interesting how she said therapy often is about addressing those attachment disorders. Right, right. Very good time with her. Very insightful. Can't wait to read the other things that she is writing about. Glad she's carrying on her work. It's just fascinating to me. Just loved it, loved it, loved it. Everything about it. Yes. Our October book is Keys to Bonhoeffer's House by Laura Fabriki. And you know, I love this book. One, yes, I am obsessed by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So obsessed I had to write a play. (laughs) (laughs) But I've been to Bonhoeffer's house in Berlin and Lara, the author of the book, was actually our docent. And that's how I met Lara. At that time, she was working on her manuscript and she told me about it. I was very excited. I said, oh, let me know when the book is published. Uh, we are going to have a chance to read that book, which is really a memoir of her experience as a docent, but also a reflection about Bonhoeffer's life and what he means to us in the 21st century. So there is just a lot to talk about there. Oh, that's going to be very interesting. Love, Dietrich. How's your play coming, Nance? It's coming well. We have the play just about fully cast I'm working on, I believe, what has to be the final draft because the actors will soon be getting their scripts. They'll start memorizing their lines. Oh, it's so exciting. (laughs) Yeah, kind of buckling in for getting this production underway. Oh my goodness, Nancy, it's so exciting. Well, we will talk about Dietrich next time then. Yeah. And all of that good stuff. So our episodes come out twice a month, the first and the third Wednesdays of each month. If you like our show, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's true. I guess we're all out there now, aren't we? That's what I'm telling people. Wherever you listen to podcasts, that's where we are. (laughs) That's right. And you can also go to our website. We have one of those. Go to frontporchbookclub.com. You can click on any of our books if you want to order Laura's book. You can click on it there. If you now want to order Wendy's excellent book, it's all listed there. And we are affiliates for Amazon. So if you do buy it through our link, it's no extra cost to you, but we do get a small commission. Isn't that handy? Okay, Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) I will see you the next time. Happy reading about Dietrich. 
I will be reading as well. Excellent. And I'll see you next time, okay? Okay. Take care, Nance. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.